The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you tonight? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. How are you? Great, Father. Great to good be here. Good to see you. Yes, well. you too. Uh, Father, any prayer requests before we get into uh, tonight's material? Well, lots of them. I see everyone to pray for our poor country. Right? Our country is suffering right now. Pray for the church, obviously. The church is suffering mightily right now. And um, as far as individual souls, well, I, I do ask your prayers for some who just passed away. I ask for uh, prayers for the prose of the soul of Margaret Chitty. Margaret Chitty uh, passed away just in the last few days. Uh, the mother of a very uh, faithful listener of what Catholics believe. Uh, please also pray for her son, who is uh, no out suffering at his loss, and also pray for the soul of Elizabeth Pfeiffer. Betty Pfeiffer passed away uh, just a few days ago, I understand, as well. So please keep her in your prayers, a uh, long-time traditional Catholic. And please pray for uh, Aaron Rebar, recovering from surgery, we hope and pray. And uh, also Diane Venter, also recovering from heart surgery. And pray for Nancy and Lori, to dear friends who've uh, just suffered uh, some injuries and uh, and falls, serious falls. So we pray they're back with us, up and running, completely recovered as soon as as soon as possible. And of course, there are myriads of others whose uh, names I've mentioned in the past and and will name in the future too. But uh, God knows who they are. Our Blessed Mother is keeping track of them. So uh, please ask for mercy for all of them. Very good. Well, also, uh, uh, yeah. I mentioned that Joe Barry uh, passed away too. So, well, he suffered a heart attack. I don't know if he passed away. I better be careful here. But he did suffer a stroke. I guess it was a stroke, is what I understood. Yeah. I mentioned him last week too. And uh, I, I believe it was a stroke that he suffered. In any case, uh, I, I'm asking for prayers for him as well, if you yeah. would please. So, uh, I'll find out more closely what his condition is and, and let people know about what that is. Very good. Well, Father, we, um, we uh, wanted to uh, cover a few topics tonight. There seems to be some very interesting happenings in the uh, Novus Ordo Church. Lately, I know many of our viewers are uh, anxious to hear your commentary on, on some, of these, uh, some of these issues. Um, there seems to be a, uh, maybe a theme lately, a growing theme of... Uh, Questioning the uh, essentially questioning the, the papacy of, of Francis, um, even among some of the 
Nova Sordo, um, bishops, priests, clergy, faithful. Um, the uh, the Remnant newspaper has uh, certainly been involved in this as well. Some of the uh, articles that they they've recently posted uh, tackling this question. Mm -hmm. You know, they had uh, when Bishop Schneider posted an article um, in the Remnant newspaper about this. But um, there there have been others as well. But apparently, Father, um, there was uh, recently just a couple of days ago, I believe, in in uh, Pittsburgh, a Catholic Identity Conference uh, titled and uh, hosted by by Michael Matt of the of the Remnant, I believe, and he. Um, I guess my understanding is that uh, he had uh, Vigano, uh, who we've, we've uh, commented on multiple times in this program. Apparently he was uh, scheduled to speak at this uh, Catholic Identity Conference. And uh, I wasn't exactly clear, Father, if he actually gave, was able to give the speech um, or, or not. But we uh, do have the text of the speech that he at least intended to give. Um, apparently it was uh, asked at some point, uh, maybe taken down after he had given the speech, or maybe he never even gave the speech at all. Um, but reading through the, the text of the speech, Father, which I think we can post a link to this on our, uh, on our website, um, I know you found it very uh, intriguing, some of the things that, that Vigano said here, and I'll let you um, get into some of those, Father. I know you had several parts that you wanted to read um, and just comment on in, in, in general, but what were your thoughts on this, uh, this, this speech by Vigano? Well, our viewers are aware that something's going on in Rome right now that is of great significance for the for the new order right they are reaching their uh, their conclusion right now they're, they're actually trying to under Francis they're trying to finally bring Vatican II to its ultimate fruit right in uh, producing this synodal church that Francis wants to create around himself right he says this is the church of the third millennium, uh, something new, something different from the church that has been before. He says he's being inspired by the Spirit to do this, of course, and um, he wants uh, a church that uh, listens, um, and more, more of an, a, you know, a, a listening church than a speaking yeah. church or a teaching church, right? So, um, in any case, this is not the Catholic Church. I think anybody who has any concept of the real Church, any knowledge of the Catechism, any faith at all, realizes that what Francis is proposing to construct here is the anti-Church, the anti-Catholic Church, the Church of the world. And um, he is the supreme pontiff of that world Church. Once he's, that's what he's planning on, on uh, leaving as his legacy, the world Church. <laughs> not the Catholic Church, the World Church. Um, and so, um, this is uh, simply a matter of logically, you know, carrying out Vatican II's uh, promise, what, what it was going to produce, and this is the evil fruit, right? The forbidden fruit of Vatican II. No, <laughs> the evil tree. Now, um, <clears throat> this has brought about a lot of speculation, and um, that it won't, you know, Mr. Matt, Michael Matt, has called this conference, this Catholic Identity Conference here, <laughs> to meet just before the, uh, the synod on synodality is beginning. Um, the, the synod in Rome is actually beginning tomorrow in the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi. I guess, Saint, I guess Pope Francis, the Pope of the New Order, Francis, uh, sees some great significance in starting the this synod on the feast day of Francis, his namesake, 
But in any case, um, the the amount of ferment that has gone on leading up to this is very interesting. Francis has made a number of appointments of people, uh, among them uh, Fernandez, uh, to lead this. Uh, the man who produced uh, books on on the the you know kissing and all the rest, and he is the great theologian now. He's the one who's going to actually be responsible for the the uh, the Novus Ordo faith now, and seeing that the synod actually follows the new order guidelines of what faith of, is supposed to be. Of course, when the modernists speak of faith, they have no no idea of the Catholic sense of faith. They mean faith, according to the modernist sense, as a, a, a religious experience of the divine, something very vague and something very personal. And um, so this whole synod is going to be about that. That idea and that definition of faith is going to be at the foundation of it all. <clears throat> so um, you look at the appointments that Francis has made going into this, and you realize what he's actually, he's setting the stage for uh, basically what he would consider the last nail in the coffin of the Catholic Church, right? Uh, he's looking to bury the church, the Catholic Church, the traditional Catholic Church, as the um, Pharisees and Sadducees and so on sought to bury Christ, okay? Um, and... Um, Something else you, you, you will find if you read the statements of those people Francis is now elevated to high positions, right? Powers of darkness in high places in his uh, Novus Ordo uh, construct. <clears throat> they are beginning with one voice to, to refer to the traditional Catholic faith as an ideology. It's like they've all gotten the word at once. To use a certain vocabulary, sort of like the newscasters, all get the word, use exactly the same vocabulary, right across the board. So it is with Francis as henchman now, in creating this this Frankenstein Church of the Synodality, um, or as it has been recently referred to as the Tower of Babylon. Of course, we've already referred to it as the Tower of Babel, or Babel, right? Um, that they are all referring to the traditional Catholic faith as an ideology. So what the church believed for the first two millennia, now for the church of the third millennium that Francis is building, the faith that went before is nothing but an ideology. And uh, when I saw this development, I realized they're actually setting us up for, uh, for persecution. Because the ideology now is going to be singled out for persecution. Uh, now, the, the true faith is Francis's faith, okay? In other words, the true faith is going to be, is going to be uh, climate change. That's the true faith for now, right? The true faith is world health situations, okay? The decrees will come out, and everyone is going to have to receive the sacrament of the, of the vaccine to be saved, right? That's going to be the true faith now. The true faith is Francis's, um, you know, everybody receives communion. Um, um, and he actually has come out and answered one of the dubia 
that was presented to him, that were presented to him by the cardinals recently, the modern cardinals, by saying, yes, divorced and remarrieds do receive, are to be given their communion, right? Their, their, their wafer. And um, this is the new, this is the now, the new faith and the true faith. And what Catholics believe for the previous centuries now, that is nothing but an ideology. And uh, that is an ideology that Francis has referred to as rigorous and um, even diabolical. And he, he's trying to mark it for death. He says that the traditional Mass, the old, the old Mass, as it is referred to, does not reflect or represent the new faith. And he's right. He's honest about that. But he says that's why the traditional Mass has to be put to death because it represents an ideology that is passé. This is all the doctrine of modernism, right? That the old faith and the old mass and all that it stands for have to die for the church, the true church actually to evolve into the third millennium. So anyway, um, in the midst of all this, of course, uh, Michael Matt has his Catholic Identity Conference and he invites uh, all the conservative New Order speakers, right? Uh, he invited um, Archbishop Vigano to speak. And um, Archbishop Vigano uh, accepted his invitation. It was actually, I think he was supposed to be one of the lead-off speakers, if not the lead-off speaker. But my best understanding is that he never actually got to give that speech. In fact, uh, Michael Matt had to explain why Archbishop Vigano was prevented from giving his speech, which was entitled Vitium Consensus. Um, even the title itself probably was a red flag for those who understood it. And they must have reported this to, to Michael Matt, I guess, who immediately suppressed it before Vigano was allowed to give it. If you go uh, and you, you type in a search for Vigano, Vitium, V-I-T-I-U-M, consensus, C-O-N-S-E-N-S-U-S, right? You will find that Archbishop Vigano recorded his talk in a chair. It looked like he was sitting in the corner of a room. He was not standing at a, on a dice, at a lectern, um, having a discourse to a room full of people. He was a solitary figure there, facing the camera, and he wound up giving his speech that way, on his own, basically for those who would care to find it and see what he intended to say. Uh, it's interesting that in, in this speech uh, that um, Archbishop Vigano intended to give, but was not permitted to give, he starts out by thanking Michael Matt for a living, allowing him to speak and raise certain questions. And then in the course of the speech, he talks about the cancel, basically the cancel culture to shut down discourse. And lo and behold, he was shut down. <laughs> he suffered that even as he was about to give this talk. But um, I think it is worth listening to, uh, just because of what is said here, because I think what he says 
is actually accurate. I think it's true. And um, I think it unmasks exactly the problem of the time. See, uh, Michael Matt has said he wants to unite the clans. But you're not going to unite the clans by avoiding the elephant, elephant in the room. And what they want to avoid is exactly what Michael Matt said he would not have on his media. And that is the question of the papacy of Francis, or state of Vicantism. He will not allow it to be discussed. And that is why he, uh, he simply uh, uh, rejected the talk by uh, Archbishop Vigano, because Archbishop, Archbishop Vigano raises that very question. It's something that must be addressed. It simply will not go away. Um, you know, uh, Eric Sammons of uh, 1 Peter 5 comes out afterwards and said, you must love the Pope. You must love, if you don't love the Pope, you have to go see a priest, go to confession. Uh, if you don't love the Pope, you've got to love the Pope. If you're a Catholic, you've got to love the Pope. And this, all of this talk does not help in the slightest whatsoever because it simply ignores the question that people have was, well, of course, as a Catholic, I love the Pope, but is he the Pope? I don't know. You know, that's what many people are asking right now. Some are saying they do know that he's not, of course. But for those, even for those who say, of course, I, I'd lo I love the Pope, I love the Holy Father, and so on, uh, but I need to know who he is, and I have my doubts. Uh, like these cardinals presenting the, the, these dubia to Francis to see if he even has the faith, how he's going to answer. Uh, there are many others out there who have their doubts as to whether Francis has the faith and can be the Pope. Now, Bishop Sch Schneider, right, uh, presumes to answer um, by saying, well, he's universally accepted, so he must be the Pope, regardless of whether he was even validly elected. He's been accepted by the Catholic faithful, so he must be the Pope, period. No, no, no discussion possible. That's just the way it is. You cannot question that. He also has a kind of a backup idea that, well, it's, uh, it's the pars tutsi order, the safer course, to just go along with him and just disobey him when he commands to do something wrong. Both of those statements of... Um, well, both of those ideas, I, I didn't quote him, but uh, he recently came out with those statements uh, to the effect presenting these two arguments. And both of those arguments uh, Archbishop Vigano addresses, and I think very effectively shows that Bishop Schneider's arguments do not hold, do not hold at all. In fact, I, I think it'd be good to read some of what he wrote here. By the way, vitium consensus means a lack of consent, right? Or consent is, is like vitiated. We have the word vitiated, meaning, you know, just ruined. It's, 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 it's uh, rendered null and void. And so the title of Archbishop uh, Carlo Maria Vigaro's talk was to be a lack of consent. And this was to be a speech given at the Catholic Identity Conference in Pittsburgh, October 1st, 2023, actually just two days ago. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll read some of this 
No, because I, I couldn't say it better than uh, Archbishop Vigano does in any case. And I think it's important to hear exactly his words. So I ask people's indulgence while I read some of the text here. This address was prepared, this is in italic, by the way, uh, before the address begins. But this is the introduction he gives on the website now. This address was prepared in order to be given at the Catholic Identity Conference. However, at the last minute, it was, quote, deleted, unquote, from the roster. It is unfortunate that in the current climate of fear within the church, the free exchange of ideas and viewpoints is no longer tolerated. Let us pray for the unity of the church, that unity which can only be grounded in the truth, who is Jesus Christ. And Archbishop Begino begins the actual address, saying, allow me to greet and thank the organizers of the Catholic Identity Conference and all who are taking part. In a moment of great confusion, it is important to clarify what is happening, even by comparing different positions. <coughs> That is why I am grateful to my friend. <coughs> Excuse me. That is why I'm grateful to my friend Michael Matt for giving me the opportunity to share some thoughts with you. In this speech, I will not try to give answers, but to pose a question that can no longer be postponed so that we bishops, the clergy, and the faithful can look clearly at the very serious apostasy present as a completely unprecedented fact, one that cannot be resolved, in my opinion, by resorting to our usual categories of judgment and action. So he's talking about a serious apostasy he says that is unique in the history of the church and requires something other than the usual responses yeah. <laughs> it requires a kind of a unique analysis <laughs> a unique treatment because it is not precedent precedented in the church and this already hints at the fact that he's saying that the the solutions being provided by others, all reaching back in the past, that they all limp, they all, they all have certain uh, problems with them, is because they're trying to deal with an unprecedented problem, um, yeah, just in ways that didn't apply, don't really, that didn't apply, don't apply now as they did then. And he explains what he means by that. He says, the proliferation of declarations and behaviors completely foreign to what is expected of a pope, and indeed in contrast with the faith and morality of which the papacy is the guardian, has led many of the faithful and an increasingly large number of bishops to take note of something that until some time ago seemed unheard of. The throne of Peter is occupied by a person who abuses his power, using it for the opposite purpose to that for which our Lord instituted it. So he's basically saying that power is being abused <clears throat> or perhaps even more than being abused. <clears throat> he goes on to explain. Some say that Jorge Mario, Mario Bergoglio is manifestly heretical in doctrinal questions. Others that he is 
tyrannical in matters of government. Still others consider his election invalid because of the multiple, multiple anomalies of the resignation of Benedict XVI and the election of the one who took his place. These opinions, more or less supported by evidence or the result of speculations that cannot always be shared, nevertheless confirm a reality that is now incontestable. And it is this reality, in my opinion, that constitutes a common starting point in trying to remedy the disconcerting, scandalous presence of a Pope who presents himself with ostentatious arrogance as inimicus ecclesiae, as an enemy of the Church, and who acts and speaks as such, an enemy who precisely because he occupies the throne of Peter and abuses papal authority, is capable of inflicting a terrible and disastrous blow, such as no external enemy in the entire history of the Church has ever been able to cause. The worst persecutors of Christians, the fiercest adherents of the Masons, the Masonic Lodges, and the most unrestrained heresiarchs have never before succeeded in such a short time and with such effectiveness in devastating the Lord's vineyard, scandalizing the faithful, disgusting the ministers, discrediting its authority and authoritativeness before the world, and demolishing the magisterium, faith, morals, liturgy, and discipline. <clears throat> In Amicus Ecclesiae, the enemy of the Church, not only with respect to the members of the mystical body, which he despises, ridicules, he never ceases to launch poisonous epithets against it, persecutes and strikes, but also with respect to the head of the mystical body, Jesus Christ, whose authority is exercised by Bergoglio no longer in a vicarious way, which would therefore be in necessary and dutiful consistency with the Depositum Fidei, but rather in a self-referential and thus tyrannical way. The authority of the Roman Pontiff is in fact derived from the supreme authority of Christ, in which it participates always within the boundaries and scope of the goals which the divine founder has established once and for all, and which no human power can change. Now that statement <clears throat> might be a little difficult to follow because it's, it's a long statement. However, <clears throat> his point here is that uh, Bergoglio shows himself not just to be an enemy of the church and inimicus ecclesiae, not only with regard to the faithful, which Bergoglio says, which Vigano uh, says he despises, but he's an enemy of the church with regard to Jesus Christ himself. He's an enemy of the church with regard to Christ himself. And he says, and he presumes to wield an authority not as a vicar of Christ, but he says Bergoglio's use of quote-unquote authority is self-referential, self-referential and tyrannical, meaning as though he's using the authority of his own, on his own behalf, and uh, actually contrary to the authority of Christ. Uh, we heard one of the, uh, his high-level ecclesiastics, an, uh, an archbishop or a cardinal even, referred to him, Bergoglio, as the successor of Christ once, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, in fact, that's how the modernists regard him, really. He is Christ today, having replaced the former Christ. 
So uh, Archbishop Bigano goes on to say, the evidence of Bergoglio's alienity, meaning his, the fact that he is the character of an alien to the office he holds, is certainly a painful and very serious fact. But becoming aware of this reality is the indispensable premise for remedying an unsustainable and disastrous situation. Now, in, that, in the course of that rather long paragraph, <clears throat> Archbishop Vigano says that this question really should be our common starting point. And that's the question that he's posing in this paper. He says, the question of is, can this man be really the vicar of Christ on earth? Can he be the supreme pontiff of the Catholic Church? <clears throat> he says, we start by recognizing and agreeing on the fact that he is <clears throat> an enemy of the church, that he's done everything he, he can do so far <clears throat> to attack and destroy <clears throat> the Catholic Church as we've known it and replace it with something else. So he says, let's agree on that. So as though he, he expects that all of those present at this uh, Catholic Identity Conference will all agree with him that yes, this is indeed the character of Bergoglio the man. <clears throat> this is what he has done all of this time. That The results are devastating for the true faith. Let's agree on that and go from there and discuss the consequences of this. He wasn't allowed even to present that idea <laughs> that the commonality which drew them all together at that conference <clears throat> was the common agreement and conviction that Bergoglio is, well, basically, as he says, an inimicus ecclesiae, that he is an enemy of the church because of what he's done. I think if you were to have wandered around the, uh, the, those who participated in the conference and those who spoke at it, uh, they would probably largely agree with Archbishop Bigano to this extent here. Um, and so, obviously, there's more to this that prompted this to be shut down. And here's what it is. He says, in these 10 years of his pontificate, we have seen Bergoglio do everything that would never be expected of a pope, and vice versa, everything that a heresiarch or an apostate would do. And then he goes on and he lists a number of things, and it's kind of a short list considering the number of things that Francis has done all this time. And he gives a list of them all. We don't have to do this here because I think most of our listeners are well aware of these things. If not, they can go online and they can see <clears throat> exactly what Archbishop Vigano says. <clears throat> they can listen to his talk. They can print out the text of his talk. They can actually read along with him as he speaks. And they'll actually, if they don't know, they'll learn a lot. Okay. Um, finally, um, Archbishop Vigano talks about Francis's cynical, utilitarian behavior of getting people in positions to do his work, his destructive work, and then when they are basically caught at it, he denounces them and washes his hands of them, kind of throws them to the wolves, using them as scapegoats. <clears throat> he said there are even prelates in the, the new order who <clears throat> live in dread of being appointed to anything 
and will not accept an appointment because they see what Francis does to those who carry out his work, okay? Um, and uh, he, he rules with a, it's like a reign of terror, basically. Um, so you see, uh, Archbishop Vigano goes on to speak here of the servile obedience in almost all the bishops, in a sense, cowering before what he calls, listen to this, he calls Francis the vengeful and despotic satrap of Santa Marta. You know what a satrap is? A petty ruler, right? <coughs> the vengeful and despotic satrap, some kind of a petty ruler of Santa Marta where Francis lives. He goes on then to talk about Francis wanting to establish a synodal church. And he says, well, his, his statement about that is interesting. He says, something therefore is beginning to change, though. Alignments are taking shape, and we see, on the one hand, Bergoglio's synodal church, which he emblematically calls our church. And on the other hand, what remains of the Catholic church, toward which he does not fail to reiterate his absolute extraneousness. In other words, he's an alien to the true Catholic church, is what um, Archbishop Vigano is saying. He then addresses these two questions uh, raised, or I should say the two answers given, by Bishop Athanasius Schneider, and he dismisses them. And I thought the first uh, point that Bishop Schneider made, <clears throat> that Francis was accepted by the Catholic people, and therefore he is the Pope, even if he wasn't validly elected, it's a moot point. He was accepted. <clears throat> you know... This is the first I've actually seen that this question dealt with. Now, maybe it's been dealt with by others, I don't know. But Archbishop Vigano addresses that head-on, because that seems to be the big issue that stops people cold. Well, he was accepted by the Pope, so he, as the Pope, so he must be the Pope, yeah. right? And Archbishop Vigano says, this is not true. That's a false argument. <coughs> Here's what he says. Uh, Bishop Schneider maintains that any irregularities that may have occurred in the 2013 conclave have in any case been healed in Radice by the fact that Jorge Mario Bergoglio has been recognized as Pope by the cardinal electors, by the episcopate, and by the majority of the faithful. Practically speaking, the argument is that regardless of the events that may have led to the election of a pope, with or without external meddling in it, the church, practically speaking, places a time limit beyond which it is not possible to challenge an election if the person elected is accepted by the Christian people. But this thesis is called into question by historical precedent. And this is where he, he brings to mind something very, very important that shows... <clears throat> The history shows that argument to be false. Here's what he says. In 1378, after the election of Pope Urban VI, the majority of cardinals, prelates, and the people recognized Clement VII as Pope, even though he was in reality an anti-Pope. Thirteen out of sixteen cardinals questioned the validity of the election of Pope Urban due to the threat of violence from the Roman people 
against the Sacred College. That's the Cardinals. And even Urban's few supporters immediately retracted their election, summoning a new conclave at Fondi, which elected the anti-pope Clement VII. Even St. Vincent Ferrer was convinced that Clement was the real pope, while St. Catherine of Siena sided with Urban. If universal consensus were an indefectibly valid argument for a pope's legitimacy, then Clement VII would have had the right to be considered the true pope, rather than Urban. But anti-pope Clement was defeated by Urban VI's army in the Battle of Marino in 1379 and transferred his see to Avignon, leading to the Western Schism, which lasted 39 years. Thus we see that the universal acceptance argument does not withstand the test of history. <clears throat> now, a little background to make that uh, fill out, out a little bit. The, the church underwent a, what they call a Babylonian captivity of the church um, from the, in the early 1300s when the, basically the, the French uh, monarch uh, sort of took the Pope captive. They elected a Frenchman in 1305, and he went and set up his um, see in Avignon. He left Rome. He was recognized as the true pope back then in 1305. He went, left Rome, and actually set up his Erzatz Vatican at Avignon, France. It took a great deal of effort, a lot of prayer, <laughs> and certainly the uh, intervention of Catherine of St. Catherine of Siena to convince one of the successors of that pope to move back to Rome, whereupon he died. And then the cardinals elected Urban VI. But the Romans were so determined, they were not going to elect another Frenchman and just have him run back to Avignon, France. The, the Romans actually did menace the, um, the cardinals gathered at the Vatican. Or, uh, anyway, they, they actually stripped tiles off the roof and, and threatened, threatened them from above and actually threatened to cut off their food supply if they did not give them a, a good pope. So the cardinals, most of whom were French, actually elected an Italian, and there was peace. But when they left Rome, they decided they didn't like Urban VI. Uh, he was too strict. And so the French cardinals in particular uh, renounced him and said, well, the only reason why we elected him was because we were subject, subjected to threats. And so they voided their own election. <coughs> they then went and elected Clement VII, a Frenchman. And uh, that's why there was the confusion. The same cardinals who elected Urban VI then turned around, renounced their own election, basically accused themselves of being cowards and having succumbed to, to pressure, and they elect somebody else. And uh, uh, Archbishop Vigano's point is very well made here, that um, the cardinal electors, the, the majority of 13 out of 16 of them, recognized the anti-pope. And uh, so did basically, uh, he says, essentially the bulk of the Catholic people accepted the anti-pope, even saints followed the anti-pope, Clement VII. <clears throat> but history has shown the judgment of the church is 
that Clement VII nor his successors were ever true popes, that Urban VI was in fact the true pope all that time, even though he was abandoned by the majority of the cardinals, most of the clergy, and most of the people who did not recognize him. So uh, I think that that's a very strong case. It's an actual provable historical case where the, uh, the argument of uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider breaks down. And I think we could actually apply something in our own day too. And that is, if we consider those who are following the Novus Ordo as actually practicing the, the religion of modernism, because that's what the Novus Ordo is, the faith of the new order is modernism. And its practice is the Novus Ordo then you'd have to, I think, if you follow that line of thinking, and I do, um, say that there are those who are actually following the true Catholic faith and its religion, the traditional Catholic religion, is uh, the practice of the true faith with its true mass and true sacraments. And then you'd have to say, well, do they recognize? You'd have to see if they recognize without hesitation and embrace Bergoglio as, as a true pope. And I think if you were to ask those who are still practicing the traditional faith in the traditional Catholic mass and sacraments and the whole traditional religion, if they believe that Bergoglio was a pope, I think many of them would say, we don't know. Many others would say, we don't believe he is the pope. We're convinced he's not. Others would say, we can't just and critically accept him because we really have good reason to believe he doesn't even have the Catholic faith. And that, as Archbishop Vigano says, he's an inimicus ecclesia, he's an enemy of the church. So this argument of uh, Bishop Schneider, I think, falls completely to pieces here. Although it appears to be very convincing to a lot of people, I don't think it has any value whatsoever. And uh, as far as the second argument of Bishop Schneider, that the Pars Tutsior, uh, the safer course is to just acknowledge uh, Francis as a pope, but just to uh, resist him and not do what he commands when it's something wrong. But um, again, Archbishop Vigano says that's not enough because here we have a case where uh, Bergoglio is constructing his own church. So simply are not going along with it is not adequate. It's not an adequate response for a Catholic to make. So he says that's not the pars or under these circumstances today because we have an, an unprecedented situation, basically. And uh, I'll read this, this last uh, section here. Well, <clears throat> again, I, I think it's all worth reading. But just to position um, Archbishop Vigano's own position, his own, let's say, explanation of what he sees happening here. He says, under the heading, the defective cons consent in the assumption of the papacy. Thus, taking notice of the fact that Bergoglio is a heretic, and Amoris Laetitia, or his declaration of the intrinsic immorality of capital punishment, would be enough to prove it, we must ask ourselves if the 2013 election was in some way invalidated by a lack of consent, that is, if the one elected wanted to become Pope of the Catholic Church, or rather head of what he calls our Synodal Church. 
which has nothing to do with the Church of Christ precisely because it stands as something other than it. In my opinion, this lack of consent can only be seen, can also be seen in Bergoglio's behavior, which is ostentatiously and consistently anti-Catholic and heterogeneous with respect to the very essence of the papacy. There is no action of this man that does not blatantly have the air of rupture with respect to the practice and the magisterium of the church. And to this are added the positions taken that are anything but inclusive toward the faithful, who do not intend to accept arbitrary innovations or worse, full-blown heresies. The fundamental question hinges on understanding the subversive plan of the deep church, which using the methods denounced at the time by St. Pius X with regard to the modernists, has organized itself to carry out a coup d'etat within the church and bring the prophet of the Antichrist to the throne of Peter. That's a pretty bold statement, yeah. right? <clears throat> the prophet of the Antichrist to the throne of Peter. <clears throat> I'm going to stop reading here. As if anybody is interested, they can, they can actually read the rest of this or listen to the rest of this themselves. But I just wanted to bring out the point he's making here, that he <coughs> is making the point that Bergoglio could never have become the Pope in the first place. <coughs> because he didn't believe in the papacy. What he believed about the papacy was totally contrary to the Catholic teaching of the papacy. And that the reason he wanted to have the papacy was to use it as an opportunity to attack and destroy the church. And so he says his election uh, was fraudulent and uh, obtained under false pretenses. And, uh, you know, again, you can, you can read this. The, the statement he makes just gets stronger and stronger as he goes along. Now, now Tom, you know that I've been saying this for years. And while others have been arguing the question of whether Bergoglio could have lost the papacy because of heresy, I've been saying for years that I think it's, a, it's an idle question because I think the fundamental question is, could he have ever become the Pope in the first place? Because when a man is elected the Pope, he can't be the Pope until he accepts the office and he has to accept the responsibility of the papacy. And if he doesn't have the faith and doesn't know what the papacy is, immediately there's a handicap there. There's an obstacle in the way. <coughs> And Bergoglio himself brings that up. He says, if a man comes up the aisle to be married, and he has no concept of what marriage is, if his concept of marriage is totally contrary to what the real nature of marriage, and he has no intention of actually fulfilling the responsibilities of marriage, then we would consider his consent to be invalid. That his consent, there would be a lack of consent, and he would not be validly married. And he uses that as an example of showing how important the consent is for a man who's elected the Pope to accept the papacy for what it really is, not his illusion of what it is or should be, and certainly not under false pretenses to deceive people into voting for him, that is, besides the members of the St. Gallen Mafia who conspired to have him elected, Others elected him for whatever reason they had, but uh, Archbishop uh, uh, Begino says that 
Bergoglio hid his true intent enough to beguile others into voting for him so that he could carry the vote and then begin his work of essentially poisoning, dismantling the church. So his, his ultimate uh, argument is um, exactly that point, that, that Vigano's lack of consent to become a true Roman pontiff, the true vicar of Christ on earth, a title which Vigano now has renounced, prevents him from ever having been the pope in the first place. And uh, this is something that really needs to be seriously addressed. But he doesn't even get the chance to address it. Uh, personally, when I read this, I was amazed, because for years I've been saying something similar to this, right? Uh, basically the same premise. And not only would no one take it seriously, no one would even respond to it. Um, people simply ignored this whole idea. So to see Archbishop Vigano bring it out vigorously uh, is not so much gratifying to me. It's rather uh, putting it on the table and saying, okay, let's seriously discuss this. And because of the fact that it's Archbishop Vigano making this, I think it's going to have to be discussed now. I don't think they can ignore it. I don't think they can duck this issue anymore. Uh, so I'm actually glad that uh, somebody was in a position who had the stature to actually put this on the table. Even though they tried to shut it down, I don't think they're going to be able to silence him. Um, so, in any case, um, there's, there's a great deal more to be said here that is very powerful. He even indicates that the election of Bergoglio was orchestrated by political figures. Some Italian gentlemen with a with great, great deal of influence in politics and in the church was a homosexual. He doesn't name him. He does mention John Podesta, who he says was Hillary Clinton's right-hand man. And John Podesta and Hillary forecasting a great springtime for the church and then uh, having a hand through McCarrick in the election of, of, um, of Bergoglio. I mean, all of this is pretty interesting from a political point of view, but it all goes right to this, back to the same, the same idea. The corruption of the authority, the attack on the real authority of the church is going on now. And he actually refers to Vatican II as a cancer, he says. And the, the cancer of Vatican II, he says, has metastasized. <clears throat> and he says it is metastasized through this, this pontificate, so-called, quote-unquote, a Bergoglio. So uh, he's calling upon his fellow New Order bishops, and I call them New Order bishops because they're the product of the New Order, really, as Archbishop uh, Bigano himself says of himself, really. Uh, 60 years of his life, he says, was devoted to promoting this, basically, and sustaining it. But he's calling on his other Novus Ordo prelates now to, to recognize this, to actually call themselves uh, to account for, for, for what he sees here and seriously step up and address this question. Well,
to actually think they'll have to. Anyway, uh, it seems as though we've actually spent the whole time talking about this issue, but I think it's serious enough that uh, it warrants that. Sometime, perhaps, we can actually go and talk about these dubia that they presented uh, to Francis and see his answers, but I think his answers to their... This is the second round of dubia, right? The others were presented years ago, and Francis just ignored them and denounced them for even asking them. Mm -hmm. This time, he answered them very verbosely. He wouldn't give a yes or no answer. They presented these, these, these doubts to him, looking for his answers, clear answers. Uh, I think the first time they presented them was in July, and he answered them in a very verbose fashion, like a modernist, not yes or no, but just rambling on random, random thoughts. And so they resubmitted those uh, dubia to Francis, hoping to get a yes or no answer to them. But of course, what he does is denounce them for asking him these questions. So it's how dare they, you ask me these questions. So um, interestingly enough, though, in his answers, he did, he did seem to, uh, as, I, as I recall, and you've read them too, say that yes, a Holy Communion or their communion is to be given to the divorced and remarried, right? So adultery is not an obstacle anymore. Um, and I think he also uh, certainly opened the door to blessing uh, homosexual unions too, right? Oh, yeah. So at least they, they got something out of him. Uh, it was not good, but at least they did. In fact, Francis himself recently said to, to his clergy, decide for yourselves whether or not to bless homosexual unions. It's up to you. Um, so, in any case, um, these are perilous times, Tom. That's right. And uh, you were speechless all this time. I'm sorry. I was speechless. Couldn't get, a, okay. couldn't get a word in edgewise. That's I'm okay. You said it all. What do you make of all this? Um, I agree with everything you say there, Father. I, I just found it striking uh, how you seem so many of the points that Vigano raises are things that you have said. Um, as you say, over the, over the years, um, that that was pretty interesting. Uh, well, I guess the people don't take me as seriously as they would take Archbishop Vigano. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's all. Well, we'll see what comes of it and um, where it goes from here. But maybe, Father, could we just end with a couple words on the uh, the uh, saint for today, Saint Teresa, the child Jesus? Yes. Well, you know, our dear Saint Teresa is uh, canonized by Pius the Eleventh. He beatified her. And then two years later, Israel, he canonized her. And um, in canonizing her, he said that in his estimation, she was the greatest saint of, uh, of our times. And by that, of course, this was uh, closer to the 18th century, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, to the 19th century than it is to the 21st century. So uh, he was actually referring to a time when we had great saints such as St. John Bosco and St. John Vianney, uh, there were uh, St. Dominic Savio, there were, there were great saints in the world at that time. And uh, Pius XI said in canonizing St. Teresa of the Child Jesus and of the Holy Face, that was her religious name, uh, that uh, in his estimation, she was the greatest of the saints of that time. Now, um, obviously, he could not, although he could canonize her on earth, he, he's not the one 
who welcomed her into heaven and pronounced her a saint in heaven, obviously. That's our Lord. So her place in heaven is decided by our Lord himself, right? Not by Pope Pius XI. But he was giving a little bit of a, a personal reflection on her life. Her little way of complete conformity to the will of God was the splendid example that she gave. And, uh, you know, it, it was a life lived very much in obscurity. I mean, my goodness, she was 14 years old, I think, when she was kneeling in Rome before Leo XIII and speaking up when she was admonished to be silent. Um, and um, I don't know if she was even that old, but she wanted to enter the cloister. And, um, of course, Leo XIII said, well, God's will will be done. Have confidence in God's will. And so, uh, because of his intervention, she was admitted at the age of 15 into the cloistered life. That takes an enormous amount of maturity, ordinarily, that would not be permitted in the church, uh, because the church wants to be sure that those who uh, commit are, do so freely and uh, a, a real genuine, um, intelligent, voluntary commitment, right? <laughs> so the church requires a certain maturity. But uh, obviously God had other plans and is not bound by ecclesiastical law. So, <clears throat> so she was accepted into the, into the convent. And uh, within uh, less than 10 years, she, she died uh, there. And um, in the cloistered convent, of course, she again lived a life of obscurity. Um, how did the name St. Teresa of the Child Jesus and of the Holy Face, therefore, become world-renowned and become, uh, you know, the, the name of a saint beloved by hundreds of thousands of people, uh, most of them Catholics, but not all, and exclusively Catholics around the world? Um, <clears throat> how could she say, I will spend by heaven doing good upon earth and letting fall a, show a shower of roses from heaven? meaning in terms of God's blessings and miracles. And she fulfilled that promise. <clears throat> I'd say many times over, actually. Um, well, God wanted her example to be broadcast. He wanted her example to be held up by the church as a prime example of what was the church considers to be extraordinary sanctity. Okay? A saint has to have, uh, has to not just be a, a nice, holy person. A saint has to manifest an extraordinary sanctity, which means an extraordinary love for God, which can be manifested really only in extraordinary sacrifice. St. Teresa, the child Jesus, offered herself as a victim soul for the love of God because she saw the world <clears throat> loved him so little. And uh, she wanted him to be loved very much, and so she offered her heart to be kind of a victim heart of love for him. Even when she was a little child, I mean, she was already practicing her little way. <clears throat> she talked in the story of a soul about <clears throat> considering herself like a, a little rubber ball. Uh, and the Christ child could play with the rubber ball as he wished. <clears throat> and that sometimes uh, it would roll away and he would forget about it. So she would think it felt like that. <clears throat> but she was perfectly content to wait until the good pleasure of the Christ child would draw him there to play with his little 
Mirabal again. She considered herself to be no more than that, in a sense. She spoke of herself also as not expecting to be this great orchid or magnificent uh, flower in the garden, but just the, the little flower that blends in and lends its little color to the overall beauty of heaven. That's how she saw herself, the little flower, really. And it was that humility that made her so much like the Blessed Mother herself, who said that the Almighty has regarded the lowliness of his handmaid and uh, has done great things to her because of that, because of that very loneliness, lowliness. And we see that in St. Teresa of the Child Jesus. Um, she really followed our Blessed Mother as her model in her complete, I would say, uh, even beyond conformity. You see, there are three ages to the spiritual life, and everyone has to go through these three ages. God can carry them by grace through those three ages very rapidly. God is not limited by our time. All we have to do is consent to the grace he gives, and that consent can be given very rapidly. So God can you know, take someone very rapidly to the heights of sanctity by the power of grace. But certainly the ordinary course of events requires that we pass through these three ages of the spiritual life by maturing, and this is a process. And the first age is that of, um, of the purgative way. I'm not making this up. I mean, this is the, the teaching of the spiritual writers, right, for centuries now. Look at Father Gary Lagrange's Three Ages in the Spiritual Life. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Said much more eloquently than I am, of course. <clears throat> but the purgative way, basically, one enters the purgative way when he makes a decision that I am going to live my life in the state of God's grace. I'm not going to live my life normally in the state of mortal sin. I want to live my life normally, habitually, in the state of grace. And when one makes that decision that I'm going to live my life in the state of God's grace, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to stay in the state of grace. I'm going to reject temptation, especially the temptation of mortal sin. If I fall into mortal sin, I'm going to go and confess and be absolved and return to the state of grace as soon as possible. I'm not going to allow a day or a week or a year to pass while I'm in a state of mortal sin any longer. I'm not going to live like that. I'm now going to live my life striving to be constantly in the state of God's grace. This is the beginning of the purgative way. And one has to overcome lots of habits, bad habits, maybe habits even of mortal sin. But one has the intention to fight them and to overcome them. And uh, there are a lot of people who don't get past that because they lose heart, they find it hard, and they basically give up. They give up on themselves. Maybe sometimes they even give up on God. Tragedy. But perhaps there are many actually who give up just when they are approaching the point of actually making a kind of breakthrough with grace, but they, they, they somehow fail themselves and fail our Lord. But those who persevere through the purgative way actually will come uh, to the illuminative way when God actually draws them on then to him. And he, he makes known to them... Um, truths and understanding of the truths of faith in a, in a, in a unique way, in a, 
a supernatural way even. So he illuminates their mind uh, to really appreciate the significance of the, uh, the truths of the faith. This is the result of their prayer and their perseverance in meditation. And um, they actually are coming to more and more conform their wills to God's will. That's wisdom. Wisdom is when we have united our wills to God's will. So he's breaking, breaking them through the process of the illuminative way, and they're gathering wisdom, growing in wisdom, and they are beginning to see and appreciate more and more the wisdom of God and the divine will. And I, I'm, I'm actually very much abbreviating all of this, as many of you know, know much more than I'm saying here. But if they persevere through that, and they go through the dark night of the spirit, as the purgative way people had to go through the dark night of the, of the, of, of the soul, as it were, the dark night of the, uh, uh, you know, the imagination, the senses, the dark night of the senses, exactly. Um, they will come to the unitive way. Now, the unitive way is what actually defined the sanctity of Our Lady. And in the unitive way, you don't have to make that conformity of the will with God's will. <clears throat> conformity has the sense of that you actually make your will harmonize with the will of God. That you make your will, you bring your will into line with the will of God. But in the unitive way, you actually have a uniformity, not just conformity, but a uniformity of your will with the will of God. And that's what St. Teresa of the Child Jesus had, clearly. A uniformity of her will with the will of God in that unitive way of, uh, of a real divine, a real perfection of life. So uh, this is the example that she said. And we see that this is a real flesh and blood example of someone who slowly in the course of her lifetime and the things that she went through, I mean, she's very human. You read what she wrote and she goes through being a little girl to being, you know, a young lady and entering the Carmel and then what she, what she experienced there. This is all real life material here. Uh, so we're not talking about some mythological figure. We're talking about a real fresh and flesh and bud blood person here uh, who uh, was elevated by God, grace by grace, day by day, to the unitive way, so that when she passed away, finally, she achieved such, such greatness in the eyes of God that God wanted to make her known on earth, so that her memory, her example, and her power in heaven can help others follow her example, and also achieve a spiritual greatness by cooperating with, with the grace of God, even as she did. Uh, there's a reason why God wanted her to be made known after her death, and he made her known in such an admirable fashion. It's really sp pretty spectacular to realize um, the, the, the significance of her very name, St. Teresa of the Child Jesus and of the Holy Face, what that means to so many people in the world today. Um, we have to pray and ask God to uh, you know, ask, her, ask her 
to intercede for us. We need her to intercede for us here in the world today. Uh, we have to ask her to let down this shower of roses, continue letting fall this shower of roses onto uh, poor needy souls uh, who need that encouragement, who need that, uh, the benefit of uh, her faith and her hope and her charity here today on this earth. So we have between this feast day today and tomorrow's feast day, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, two altogether remarkable figures, even among the saints, who are known and, and loved very much today. And uh, the, the challenge, though, that they leave us is to follow their good example. And that's, that's a matter of cooperating with grace. So... Um, Anyway, I leave you with that. Very good. Thank you, Father. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Well, thank you, Tom. If uh, people are, have a hankering to read something uh, that will inspire them, they could read St. Teresa's The Story of a Soul, which she was ordered to write by her mother superior. And uh, she didn't like to bring attention to herself, but it must have been a bit of a uh, difficult task for her because, again... She was not her favorite subject, right? But, uh, but she did it admirably, and it is inspiring, very inspiring in our day. Mm -hmm. So I recommend that very highly. Absolutely. Thank you to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What the Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.